You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. All right. As you probably know, I'm Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton. So what I do is work with employers on a daily basis, having these practical discussions where I'm not giving legal advice. I want to make that very clear, not giving legal advice. There are lots of emerging ordinances or laws or regulations or uh, perhaps even guidance that's being released. So I say that just to remind you to be diligent about your updates. So for today's conversation, the goal is to help employers address or solve compliance concerns and issues. So Ask Michelle was created to answer questions that are most meaningful to you, our audience member. So you can email me at any time throughout the month at askmichelle at boltonco.com, and I will respond to your question, or I'll read your question on air during the monthly webinar. Please don't forget that this is also an Apple podcast, so you can go to your Apple store and download each version of prior episodes, and you can do that the Tuesday after uh, the, the actual episode. So if you don't catch all of today's, you'll either be able to get the recording link or you can just go to Apple Podcasts and download the latest episode. So we're going to get started today. Today we have a lot of focus on group benefits. We have some updates there and I have a few related to um, non-group benefits areas as well. So I always start out with some compliance chatter. It's really nice to know, I think, what are other employers questioning me about? What are other employers uh, bringing up? Or what's happening in the news? What's relevant? So the very first thing I would say is that the public health emergency and the national emergency is going to end. And that is going to be big news. It might not be right now, but it will in the months to come. And it's going to end on May 11th. We did release a blog announcement on that, so I'll click the link there for you to follow when you download the slides. Also, Medicaid will start eligibility reviews again. So Medicaid is uh, the federal program, and each state has their own version of Medicaid. And in California, the Medicaid program is called Medi-Cal, if you can believe that. So Medi-Cal and Medicaid will start eligibility reviews again, and you should know what that might mean for your group health plan. Because what happened is during the public health emergency, Medicaid and Medi-Cal, they paused their eligibility reviews. They paused all renewals. So individuals who should have lost eligibility because perhaps they had access to employer coverage that was more affordable, those individuals did not lose Medicaid eligibility during COVID-19 emergency. So when these eligibility reviews start again, which will happen soon, 
that means that some group health plans may see a significant increase from employees who then lose Medi-Cal eligibility and want to join the employer group health plan. Of course, that's going to affect probably um, the, the workers that are, were using Medi-Cal to begin with, so lower wage earners. We might be looking at that group, those that were on Medi-Cal. You might want to read that article, just kind of start to plan or at least be aware that this may happen. Oh gosh, and one of my least favorite subjects lately is the RX cost reporting that's due. And this is something that for fully insured plans, it probably flew under the radar because this reporting was done by fully insured uh, carriers at the end of last year. And the carrier didn't really need anything from you as the employer. They just submitted the report and they probably sent out a piece of communication to you just letting you know, hey, we're doing this on your behalf. We're complying. You know, you don't need to do anything. But that is changing. The 2022 report is due in June. And the fully insured carriers have started to send out communications asking employers to fill out an online form. And this is very important. So if you are a, if you are an employer with a fully insured medical plan, I want you to know there's a deadline out there for some of the carriers. They have a deadline that you must meet and you must fill out their form. Otherwise, you will be very unhappy in the coming months because you might have to submit your own forms to CMS and no one wants to do that. So I've got a quick note here. You're looking at Anthem has sent out their online form to their customers and their customers, of course, being employers with fully insured group health plans. Anthem's deadline to fill out that form is March 1st. Now, the good news is, by far, the Anthem form is the easiest one to fill out of all the carriers. It's, it, it might not even take five minutes to complete, but you do have to have certain information on hand in order to complete it. For example, you need to have your, your plan number, which you would find on a 5500, and you also need to have your Anthem group number, uh, how Anthem identifies you. And then you have to have the percentage split of contributions, uh, the employer percentage and the employee percentage of contributions for 2022. Aetna has a deadline also of March 1st, but um, interestingly enough, their data collection is on hold. So if you're an Aetna client, you can't submit anything, even though they say their deadline is March 1st. So uh, be on the lookout for updated communication from Aetna. UHC, oh, this one I, I'm very disappointed. Um, I really hope UHC does make some changes. But for now, their deadline is March 3rd. And the UHC online form is very long and I would say confusing for most employers. So if you are a United Healthcare client and you have a medical plan that's fully insured with United Healthcare, Please make sure that you're seeing and reading the emails that come out and, of course, that you're meeting these deadlines. If you're Blue Shield, Kaiser, or Cigna, or HealthNet, and you have a fully insured medical plan with one of those carriers, this is to be determined. 
they have not yet sent out their communications, but they will. They will. Um, except for HealthNet, who said we won't need anything from employers, which I find strange according to the law. But let's focus on Blue Shield, Kaiser, and Cigna. If those are your medical carriers and you're fully insured, you need to watch your communication from them. It has not yet gone out, but it will very shortly. In fact, Cigna's communication is coming out today per their last email to us. So Cigna told us they're going to send an email today um, with further instructions, which likely is going to be an online form that you will need to complete. And this is with regard to the RX reporting. I have a few questions on that, which is good. I'm glad that you all are taking in this information because doing it now will save you so much time if, uh, if you don't do it. So it's important. The first question is, is this for all size groups or just large? It is for all size groups. So groups from two to all the way to, uh, you know, infinity. And then there's your question, do we have to send the forms if we're a PEO like Trinet? Um, Trinet will have their own way of handling this. I have not heard how they're going to do it. So you, I would reach out to your Trinet representative and ask them if you need to submit anything. I think the PEO is going to have one submission and be treated, they're going to treat themselves as one plan instead of uh, each group that they work with, but please do reach out to Trinet. Another question for fully insured groups, um, meaning the company is paying for all of this employee premium. No, fully insured is the funding arrangement with which you buy insurance. So if you're self-insured, you're funding claims as they happen. And if you're fully insured, it means you pay the carrier one flat amount each month. And the carrier does all the administration for you and provides you with insurance. The reporting applies to all employer group health plans that has prescription drugs. So it's fully insured and self-insured employers. But for now, I'm only speaking to those groups that are fully insured, meaning you pay Anthem or United Healthcare or Blue Shield, you pay them a flat amount each month because they send you an invoice and then you pay them a check. Self-insured groups have TPAs and PBMs and they pay claims as they come. But the reporting is due for all groups, whether you're fully insured or self-insured. I'm going to do a poll right now because I'm curious. It, I'm always concerned, you know, am I answering your questions? That's my first my first goal that we spoke about, you know, that I led with is that I want to ask and answer the questions that are meaningful to you. So I'm going to deploy this very short poll. If you could please answer the question on the screen. Because the truth is, you – the answer could be no. You know, do you want a more in-depth discussion? Because I can do, you know, a 30, 45 webinar, minute webinar on this topic where I describe what the reporting requirement is, why it needs to be done, and then who's doing it. I can spend the time doing that if you want to know. But some, the answer might be no, I don't. I don't understand it, and but I also don't want to know. I just want to know what I have to do. 
and I don't need to know the details. And that's fine too. So that's why the no thank you option is up there as well. Which is helpful for me if you fill this out and that way I can, um, you know, sort of give you what you need. You want to hear more about it? I can talk about this in depth. I can probably talk about this for hours. And if you answered yes or no, uh, but you want to know some brief information regarding this RX reporting, I did link the Bolton blog. I just recently sent out a compliance alert, or our marketing department sent out a compliance alert, and uh, we posted a blog on this topic. So you can click on the link afterwards and, and learn a little bit more about it as well. All right, thank you. Most of you had voted. It looks like it's a pretty even split. Some people want to know more and some people don't want to know more, which is completely fine. And I understand that. All right, thank you. So we're going to move on. All right, this is the Ask Michelle portion. So we have this new format we've been rolling with the past three or four months. And what happens is it's a lot shorter. So in the beginning, I talk about the compliance chatter and I spend a couple minutes updating everyone on what I'm hearing and what questions I'm being asked about or what's new. And then we spend the rest of the time just answering questions. So here's a question I received via Ask Michelle. Someone had asked, how does my organization apply for California SPSLA, SPSL grants for small business? So if you're a California employer and you paid out uh, supplemental paid sick leave to your California worker in the calendar year 2022, certain small businesses can apply for a grant for a reimbursement. But it is for small businesses. So it's, uh, they define that between 26 to 49 employees could apply for a grant, but there are restrictions. And I checked the site that's in charge of this grant program. That's what they're calling it. And it's the link to the site is here on the screen. So it's Cal Ozba, C-A-L-O-S-B-A, and it's called the Sick Leave Grant Program. They're not taking applications yet. So um, we have to wait in, in until they even open up the site to take applications. And then, of course, you want to determine is your business or organization, do you qualify for the small business grant? And I've got some bullet points on the screen that will help you understand if you qualify. It's not the complete list of items um, or restrictions. So click on the link later on if you think you might qualify and that you'll find all the details down there. But how does my organization apply for the California SPSLA grant for small businesses? It is small businesses, so between 26 to 49 employees. If you're an organization and you fit that definition, then I would definitely click on this link, find out more, and then sign up for updates. That way you know when the grant program opens. And again, it's for reimbursement of SPSL that you paid out for calendar year 2022. The next question I received, and this has to do with the end of the public health emergency and also a separate emergency, which is what, uh, which is the national emergency. So the, uh, the declaration of the national emergency brought about what we call the joint extension of certain claims deadlines or certain deadlines period. And one of those, which really 
really caused a headache was the COBRA extension, the COBRA deadline. With the national emergency ending on May 11th, that means that these deadlines are going to be fast expiring. And someone had a question about the COBRA deadlines that were or are going to expire. So you can see the first question someone asked if a qualified beneficiary of someone eligible for COBRA had previously been offered COBRA back on, let's say, August 1st of last year, and they choose to newly elect COBRA during the 60-day election period that starts up on July 11th. Would their coverage and premiums do um, be retroactive to August 1st, or could they just elect effective July 11th? Well, I put this question on here because I want to make sure that we clarify together that there is not a new election period. There absolutely is not a new election period. The July 11th date reflects the date after the end of the extended deadline for someone who became eligible for COBRA on July 11th of 2022. And the reason why is because the DOL released guidance in 2021 to make it very clear that the extended deadline should be no longer than 12 months for any individual. So having said that, let's say this individual was uh, qualified for COBRA back in July, into July in 2022. So they're still within their 12 months. And all of a sudden they want to elect COBRA now. And they can't because they're under this extended deadline. But what they cannot do is say, oh, I'm just going to start at July 1. No. If they want to elect COBRA, they have to go all the way back to their COBRA, original COBRA date, and they have to pay all those back premiums. And so then their coverage would be retroactive back to the date of the loss of coverage. In this scenario, that's August 1st. And the participant must pay all of those back so I say all that, and I really want to emphasize, here's my special announcement. There are not going to be many people taking advantage of this. And one, it's already been running for almost uh, two years now, and we didn't see many people take advantage. And the second part is, can you imagine someone signing up and then having to pay almost 12 months of, of of retroactive premiums that would have to be paid in order for them to get on COBRA. I mean, that would be a lot of money. And most of these individuals who declined COBRA or terminated their COBRA due to non-payment, they likely didn't need the coverage or they went into the individual marketplace or the marketplace exchange or they got a, a coverage through another employer. So we do not think this is going to be a significant event with employees. And the key here is to remember, remember that um, the deadline, the extended deadline, can, it should be no longer than 12 months for any individual. No longer than 12 months for any individual. And the other question, just to further clarify here together, what if the qualified beneficiary uh, previously elected, previously elected COBRA for several months back on August 1st. And then they terminated due to their own request. They just said, I don't want COBRA anymore. Can they re-elect again in July? No, 
They cannot. This is not a new election period. And, and I say that emphatically because I just want it to be very, very clear. This is, they cannot re-elect. And then finally, what about notices? Is there any new communication that needs to go out to qualified beneficiaries? There's currently not any type of requirement to send out a notice uh, in addition to the COBRA notices that are already required. There is not. I mean, it's possible guidance would change that, but I don't see that happening. And I do think we'll get some guidance to help us learn how to wind this down properly, but I don't think it's going to include any type of notice requirement. I could be wrong, so of course, be diligent about your updates. Okay, I have another quick poll for you. I thought this was an interesting question. It doesn't really fall in in my, I guess, scope, if you will. Uh, but I, I thought it would be a good question for the audience. You know, is this something that we should be talking about? Um, so we had a question about an employer who was seeing an increase in staff reporting that they're feeling targeted by their supervisors and, or, or managers, whoever's giving them the feedback, anytime they receive any level of feedback. Okay, so we've got an employee, they go in for, let's say, um, a semi-annual review, and then they come back and they, and they come back to HR and they say, I've been targeted. I feel like, you know, this person has a vendetta against me, something like that. And, and in this example, uh, this person said, this could be anything from a very soft verbal coaching to a written disciplinary form where the employee then comes back and says, I feel targeted. And this company has to open a formal investigation, or they often do when this happens. Is anyone else experiencing this type of, I guess, scenario that's seeing it increase as opposed to prior years? If you could fill out the poll, that would be great here. So far, we have most no's. We have 70% no, and um, around 30% yes on that. I'd like to get a couple more people to to answer that, to get a larger sampling size. And I think this is good data to know in, in the event of putting together an HR roundtable, if you will. It's nice to get together with other HR peers and talk about what you're seeing and, and solve some of these issues at that level. Okay, so we're still at, at the majority saying, no, they've not seen an increase, at least not for our audience. And I'll go to the next question I received. What group health plan coverage will be affected when the public health emergency expires on May 11th? This topic will gain a lot more attention in the coming months. Right now, what's happening is we just found out a couple of weeks ago, that the public health emergency will expire on May 11th. So we just got the notice, which was promised by the Biden administration and HHS. They both said, we promise to give you plenty of time. So you have time to roll back some of the, the uh, mandatory regulations or laws that were because of the public health emergency, which is really nice. But what's happening now is the carriers are then 
needing to react to this news. So the carriers have to decide, you know, how are they going to roll this back for your fully insured plan? What is that going to look like? And the carriers are already working hard to get your data on Rx reporting. So this is something else they have to pay attention to. And I say that just because I want to set the expectation that, you know, it will take them some weeks to figure this out. But I can tell you what, what uh, has the potential to be affected and most likely will. So, for example, the end of the PHE means that the requirement for group health plans to cover COVID-19 tests without cost sharing, that includes both your over-the-counter test and your lab test, will end, will end. So group health plans will no longer have to cover COVID-19 tests without cost sharing. So my only comment here is it's it's very likely that group health plans will continue to cover lab testing. So that's where you go and you get the swab and then they send it off to the lab. It's likely that the health plans will continue to cover this testing, but with cost sharing now. And there's our lab tests are already covered. Most of them are already covered under your group health plan. It's already built into your group health plan. I suspect that that's how COVID tests will be covered after May 11th. They're just going to consider it a simple lab. And um, they're going to apply coinsurance or a copay as noted on a benefit summary. But I don't know. I'm just telling you what I suspect. Carriers have not responded yet. So you'll need to check with your own individual carrier to learn how they will start covering this after May 11th. And that's the COVID test. That would be a big change because right now, now I don't know about you all, but I, I myself and I have my two children. So, oh gosh, sometimes we constantly COVID test, especially in December and January where we were. And I'm so used to going anywhere I want, going through the drive-through or walking into an urgent care center, getting it done. Uh, or either going to CVS and getting my free test kits and then coming home. And that, that will be a change after more, after May 11th. So me and my family will have to really start to think about, oh, am I going in network for this test? And well, how much will it cost me to test? So that will be a change. We have to learn how the carriers are going to respond. So it will take them some time. I imagine we'll start to hear more about this in April from our carriers. So, again, uh, stay tuned for updates on that. If you have a self-insured medical plan, you'll want to work with your TPA and just to determine, do you want to cover tests moving forward? How do you want to cover those tests? You know, you'll need to have that conversation with your TPA if you're a self-insured plan. The next item that will be affected is out-of-network tests and related services are no longer required to be covered by the group health plan. And this is, of course, COVID-19. We're speaking to out-of-network COVID-19 tests and related services. Again, big change for me because when I go to get my tests, I do not pay attention to the network. I just go. And that's because it had to be covered prior to the end of the PHE. But starting May 11th, out-of-network tests and related services are no longer required to be covered. So we will all have to start paying attention to where we are going to get the tests and treatment or services related to COVID-19. And COVID-19 vaccines provided by out-of-network providers will no longer be required to be covered by the group health plan. 
Um, now vaccine access is wide. You know, there's a ton of access out there, which is fantastic. You know, that, that's what we want, what we wanted. But now at the end of the public health emergency, again, we have to start paying attention to networks because the COVID-19 vaccines no longer have to be covered out of network. So check with the carrier. And I know the carriers, again, they have control of this. If you're fully insured medical plan, your carriers have control, and that's why you need to check with your carrier. Telehealth access is going to become uh, harder to find, and that's because certain PHE provisions, so public health emergency, certain provisions made it easier for these healthcare providers to practice via telehealth. And so a lot of them started doing that as a regular uh, practice because the regulations were relaxed, if you will, specifically across state lines and without fear of HIPAA violations with, while using services like FaceTime or Skype. But the end of the PHE means that the telehealth providers will not be as accessible as they were during the PHE. So probably not any direct impact to your group health plan, but just something to be aware of because some of us are, were used to telehealth becoming fairly normal. And it did gain popularity, there's no doubt. And now those providers we're used to seeing via telehealth may not be accessible. And going along with that, the ability for healthcare providers to dispense controlled substances via telemedicine without in-person interaction will uh, also go away with the expiration of the PHE. But I wanted to note that HHS has stated that the DEA is working on rulemaking to extend these flexibilities, uh, and that is with regards to controlled substances and in-person interactions. So we may that may still continue to be allowed under a new rule, but we've yet to see any new rule. The Drug Enforcement Agency, though, has said, hey, we're working on it, so they've given us. Uh, they've given us a clue that they want it to continue, they, but they need to create a law in order for it to continue. So more guidance available for that in the future as well. So it gives you a little bit of insight of what could change, what probably will change, but I cannot tell you exactly how it will change because it's the carriers that will need to let us know you know, if you're in a fully insured arrangement. If you're in a self-insured arrangement, you should be working with your TPA to determine how all of this will change in the future. As always, I wanted to leave you with some resources that I hope you'll find helpful. If you haven't received the, the blogs that I linked to earlier in the presentation, that's because you need to subscribe to the Bolton blog. So you can do that at boltonco.com slash blog, go to the bottom of the page and just enter your email and hit subscribe. If you have any benefit-related questions and you're a Bolton Benefits client, of course, feel free to contact your team or you can come direct to me. And for Bolton clients, you have access to Mineral, which is a great resource for sample forms and policies. Oh, paid sick leave charts. Oh, gosh, a lot of states are passing their own paid sick leave, so those charts are great resources. Fisher Phillips has a three-step action plan for California employers. Uh, with regards to the Cal OSHA rule that's now in effect. And also I linked the Cal OSHA COVID-19 changes fact sheet. I read it myself this morning. I thought I did a pretty good job 
of summarizing what has changed with the new non-emergency regulation. And unfortunately, California employers doing business in California do have to comply with CCPA for the most part. And Fisher Phillips does have a resource center, so you can check that out if you're struggling with CCPA compliance or if someone at your organization is struggling with CCPA compliance. All right, I kept that to almost 30 minutes or less. Thank you for hanging in there with me. I appreciate it. If you have any questions throughout the um, the month and you need an answer, you can feel free to pose that question and ask Michelle at boldthinkcode.com at any time. Thanks, everyone. See you next month.